Welcome to episode 13 of the Via Emmaus podcast, where we'll be discussing the Old Testament portion of this week's reading plan. My name is Anton Brooks. I'm here with David Schrock, the pastor of preaching and theology here at Aquaquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. We're going to take a look at Leviticus, specifically um, chapters 1 through 15. And in the next broadcast, we will cover verses, I'm sorry, chapters 16 through 27. This text is often referred to as the book of the law. What exactly is the book of Leviticus and where did it get its name? Yeah, so uh, just thinking about the, the language book of the law, right? Uh, Josiah finds the book of the law later right. on in the Old Testament. I think that's probably thinking more of Deuteronomy uh, than Leviticus. Right. Uh, yeah. But here we certainly find all of these laws that are there. Yeah. And you ask the question, okay, Leviticus, that has something to do with the Levites, right? right. And uh, probably, uh, it's interesting, if you go back to the Hebrew scriptures, the way that um, Moses' five books would have been titled, it was always the very beginning of the book. So Leviticus begins, uh, and the Lord called, really, and he called. Mm-hmm. So that was the title. Uh, right. that Jews would have had at that time. Uh, when the Septuagint was written, it changed the title to Leviticus or pertaining to the Levites. But what I find striking is the fact that the Levites are hardly mentioned at all in right. the book of Leviticus, right? Yeah. Only in chapter, I think it's 25, do we see some inheritance laws about the Levites. They're mentioned like four times. Mm-hmm. The whole book is about the priests. It's the law of the priests. In fact, the, uh, the Hebrews today or the Jews today would call Leviticus the book or the law of the priests. And this is one thing that we often can overlook when we're reading through the Old Testament, and that is that the role of the priest and the role of the Levites are not exactly the same. Right. Right. The priests are the ones who serve at the altar, offering sacrifices. For the first seven chapters of Leviticus, for instance, it's giving laws to the priests for how they're going to bring sacrifices before the Lord. The Levites are the servants of the house. They're the ones who are coming and added to the priests. They're serving alongside their brothers. They're guarding the house. They're actually guarding the priesthood of Aaron. When we get into Numbers, we'll see a little bit more about that. Right. Uh, but there's a distinction that is there. But in particular, the book of Leviticus, as we call it, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, a book about the priesthood and the sacrificial system that is given to the people of Israel. Awesome. So who is this book for? I think one thing that's helpful to keep in mind when we read Leviticus is that we have not moved geographically and we have not moved chronologically from Exodus. Right. Right. So Exodus 19, the people of Israel show up at Mount Sinai and the entire book of Leviticus is given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Right. The people of Israel will be at Sinai for about a year. Uh, they start in Exodus 19 and they will be there until Numbers chapter 10. Right? And here the book of Leviticus is God calling out to Moses, speaking to him from the tent of meeting and explaining to him how it is that the people of Israel can come into the presence of God under the old covenant system. Mm-hmm. So really, when we think about where this is being spoken and to whom it is speaking, being spoken to, to Moses, well, this book is for Israel. Mm-hmm. Right? It's for those under the old covenant. We'll talk about this next time when we get to Leviticus 26 and all these promises of blessings and these promises of curses. Mm-hmm. Does that apply directly to us? Say, no, it applies to us as instructions for us, but it is always mediated through the finished work of Christ. Right. Right? So in that way, uh, it is not written directly uh, to us. It is written to the people of Israel. But it is for us, right? All the Old Testament is written for us, for our example, for our instruction, for our teaching, so that we'll know more uh, of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So the reason why I asked that question is, is I think that sometimes we, um, or today's Christians in a lot of churches, we apply Leviticus directly to us. Yeah. You know, as far as like, we have to follow everything that's in Leviticus 
uh, under the old covenant that mm-hmm. was, you know, obviously, like you said, Leviticus was written specifically for the Israelites yep. um, at that time. And I, I was wanting to clear that up because uh, very often I yeah. had a conversation. We talked about it in a, in a podcast a while back, but, mm-hmm. you know, with a woman who was um, regarding the Sabbath, that if you don't follow the Sabbath, that you can't be saved. And right. if you don't rest on the seventh day. That's right. Um, so that, that's the reason why I asked that question. I just think well, it's important for us to clear that up. It's an important thing. It's why this whole podcast exists, right? So we can read the Bible. We can read the Bible better. Right. Uh, just the other day I was talking to someone about uh, a, a believer who uh, would not eat any pork product, mm-hmm. right? Because they said, well, it wasn't good for the Israelites under the Old Covenant. Therefore, it cannot be good for us today. Mm-hmm. So that's misapplying the Old Covenant, especially because... Acts 10, God specifically says to Peter, mm-hmm. go kill and eat, right? All these unclean animals. Right, yeah. So I think every single time that we eat bacon <laughs> or we see ham, it should remind us that we have a new covenant right. that is found in Christ, right? And we're not living under the old covenant. We're living under what Christ has done. There's a lot of grace there because I really like bacon. Yeah, amen <laughs> to that. Amen. Um, let's see. So in chapters 1 through 7, we cover the laws of burnt offerings, grains and offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, and priest offerings. And covering those laws, there seems to be a lot of regulation for each type of offering. Why are these offerings so important? So it's possible that if you're reading through the Bible and you've made it through the curtain rods and the clothing of Exodus, you get to Leviticus 1 through 7, you'd be like, oh my goodness. I can't stand it any further, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Like, I just want to go back to Egypt, yeah. right? Because it's exciting there, yeah. and this seems anything but. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we then read all the repetitions, right? All the yeah. different ways the sacrifices are going, and we're really challenged by that. And then, if anybody's ever preached through Leviticus, and they basically preach chapters 1 through 7, like every little nook and cranny of it, yeah. like you would Paul's epistles, like, just stop, don't do that. <laughs> right, that is yeah. not how you should be preaching that. Right? So, a couple things to keep in mind. One, all the regulations for the priest to offer these sacrifices are actually not enough because there's some information there that's left out. Right. Right? So, we would not be able to take that today, uh, and especially for those who didn't grow up on a farm, yeah. and understand okay, where do I cut? How do I do this? What does this look like? I need a YouTube video for this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there was already a kind of understanding of how sacrifice worked at that time. And now these are the regulations of how sacrifices are to be rightly given, right? For us today, we can read and say, okay, this is so far removed from, mm-hmm. from us. And it is, uh, in part because Jesus came and he fulfilled all of these sacrifices, right? So chapters 1 through 7, there are five different sacrifices that are there, right? So it uh, begins with the burnt offering, which is kind of the basic sacrifice that is there. The animal is entirely consumed. Added to that is the grain offering or a cereal offering. Uh, It's important to see that there would never be a grain offering that was given apart from blood. Mm. So there's going to be a blood sacrifice along with the grain sacrifice. So this goes back to even what we saw with Cain and Abel, right? Because Cain brings a sacrifice from the ground. Mm. Can't you do that? Isn't that in the law? Yes, but never without blood, Mm. right? So it's always going to be added to that. Um, The peace offering is the third one that is mentioned, uh, and that's the final goal. Right? That's the very center uh, of what the whole sacrificial system is for. Ultimately, it's not to just offer animals on the altar. It is to bring the people of God into the presence of God to enjoy fellowship with God. Right. Right? And that's what the peace offering is done because the, the worshiper will then eat of that. 
Then you have sin offerings and guilt offerings, which are dealing with different ways that sin applies. And what's interesting is that those priests actually have to have a greater sacrifice that is being offered there, uh, really one that is equivalent with the entire congregation when they sin. Right? So there's some different ways that we can just learn how these offerings work. But then we come to chapter 6 and 7, and it gives an order of the sacrifices. And it moves from a burnt sacrifice or burnt offering to a sin offering to a peace offering. Right? And it's moving in that direction. And I think that gives some of the logic of what's taking place here. That the burnt offering is cleansing the altar so that the sin offering can cleanse the people, so that the cleansed people can come and have fellowship with their God. Wow. Right? And when we understand that logic, we realize that's what Jesus has done. Right. Right? And we understand what he's done on the cross because of these sacrifices here, the Day of Atonement, which we'll talk about as well. All of these sacrifices are fulfilled in Christ. So we don't need to go back and do them. We're not looking for a day and time in the future when these will be repeated again because Jesus has done it all. Mm. But to understand what he's done on the cross, we look at these Old Testament sacrifices and in fact, um, we even find that the New Testament authors are picking up some of the imagery, some of the different language here as well. Uh, Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering servant as a sin offering and a guilt offering. And so in these ways, we see how Jesus is going to fulfill these things. So we don't apply this directly to ourselves today, mm-hmm. but mediated through Christ, we understand more of what he's accomplished by reading these books or reading yeah. these chapters. It would seem like that if we applied any of the laws, we'd have to apply them all. For it to make any sense, I don't know how we would be able to look at Leviticus and just pluck the ones that we want to apply to ourselves. Like, for example, the, the ham one yeah, uh, or the, the pig one um, and just say, OK, well, I'm just going to take this one out of Leviticus and I'm going to apply it to myself, but I'm not going to apply the rest yeah. of them. So one way that that's been done historically, just Christian tradition, is to look at the civil, the ceremonial mm-hmm. um, and the, the ethical laws mm-hmm. that are there or moral laws that are there. Um, the trouble is, is that's not how Moses organizes his books, mm-hmm. right? You have civil laws right next to moral laws encased with ceremonial laws. Right, yeah. They're all part of the same package, mm-hmm. right? So that tripartite division of the law is helpful because it helps us to see how some of these things are fulfilled in Christ, mm-hmm. how some of them are continued through the law of Christ, but at the same time, it doesn't just break out that easily. We'll especially see this in Deuteronomy where the shape of that law is based on the ancient Near Eastern treaties at that time. It's not based upon our, our understanding uh, later on. Okay. In chapters 11 and 12, we read about the food laws. What do these laws have to do with us today? I think we kind of touched on it a little bit. Yeah, so again, in one way, they don't have anything to do with us, right? right? Because we're reading this on the other side of Acts 10 and um, God's word to Peter, right? So Peter had never eaten any of these unclean animals. So it shows us that even though he wasn't a scribe, even though he wasn't someone who studied in the schools at that time, he was a faithful Jew, right? right? So he never ate these things um, and it was hard for him to do that. In fact, one of the things we see in the New Testament was the difficulty that the people of Israel who are just so instructed in these laws had of actually sitting down with Gentiles who would eat other foods, right? right? There's just those uh, laws of cleanness that were there. And so in Leviticus, we have what are known as holiness codes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has to do with the food that they're eating, begins in chapters 11 and 12. So in one sense, it doesn't have anything to do with us. In another sense, there's something fundamental in being human about our food, mm-hmm. right? I'm talking about clean, unclean, that doesn't make sense to me. 
until you go to Panera Bread mm -hmm. and the first thing you see on the door is come and eat clean food, right, yeah. right? So it's like, oh, so we've just gone back under the Levitical law, <laughs> right, except yeah, yeah. it's those who are talking about eating kale and different things uh, like that. So we do have an understanding of the way that food shapes a culture. Mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what God is doing with the Old Testament. He is trying to create a holy people separated unto himself. And one of the greatest ways to do that is to separate them by their food. Right. Because of all the other nations around them are eating particular foods, and God wants to particularly bring His people to Himself. Well, if they can't eat the same thing, they can't be together in fellowship. Right. Right. Yeah. And ultimately, this is one of the ways that we understand these laws that this is not something that is inherent in creation, right? These food laws, but rather it is for a particular time to make a holy people. Right? These laws are not what make them holy, but it separates them out from the nations. And we know that it's not built into creation, like marriage is, right. because uh, in the New Testament, it, the laws changed. Mm -hmm. Marriage never does. Right. Right? Marriage is always going back to that creation norm that is there. These laws of Moses are being added to that. Right. Right? So for us today, we can ask the question, so does food have anything to do with the Christian experience? No, and yes. Right? We are defined by a meal, mm -hmm. but that meal is the bread and the cup at the Lord's table. Right. Right? And that is the meal that now defines us and has an impact on how we are to live our lives. Right? So if we think about 1 Corinthians, they were tempted to go and offer sacrifices and to eat of the table of demons, mm. Paul speaks of. He says, don't do that. Right? Rather, you are to be participants of the holy meal that is given in the bread and in the cup, and there's a right way to do that. Right. So for believers, we are identifying ourselves and a culture is being created by the food that we eat, but it's a food that has been given to us in Christ. Right, wow, amen. So we see in chapter 13, the leprosy laws. What were these laws for? So we've talked a little bit already about just um, the idea of cleanliness, mm -hmm. right? So we hear today that cleanliness is next to godliness. And <laughs> yeah. in Israel, this is literally true, mm -hmm. right? In order for God to teach his people that he is a holy God, he establishes these clean and unclean rules. It has to do with food, it has to do with leprosy. And in the case of a leper, uh, it is basically like someone who, it may be a skin disease of different kinds. It's not quite the same kind of leprosy that we might see in India today or other places. Um, but there is a sense in which there was a physical abnormality in the body. And so chapters 13 and 14 speak about that. Mm -hmm. And in so many ways, it is um, a way that this person is closer to death than the person who is whole and healthy. Right. Right? And the most unclean thing in all the Bible is death. Mm. Right? This is why the priests, later on in chapter 21, cannot go near a dead body, right. except in the case of their closest family members. Right? Because a priest who is given to the holy place and a place of life in the tabernacle, um, they can't expose themselves to death because they'll become impure. Mm -hmm. So in the case of a leper who is going to be in the camp with the people of Israel, the priest or the Levite, or actually the priest, is going to then make uh, a judicial um, determination if this person is clean or not. If he's uncertain, they'll put him outside the camp and for a time then uh, they'll come back seven days later and to evaluate them once again. Right. So again, the whole purpose here is to keep the people with an awareness of cleanliness that is necessary to approach God. Mm. Because again, cleanliness is all that the people of Israel could do for themselves. They couldn't make themselves holy. 
But in order to approach a holy God, they had to be clean. The priest had to wash himself with water, had to go through these different ceremonies because he was going into the holy place of God. Ultimately, blood was necessary in order to make him holy so he wouldn't perish as he comes in the presence of God. Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> but the whole, the whole system then is to teach the people of Israel how you stay in relationship, right relationship with God. Now, here's the, the end of the story, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, all the priest could do is to make a judgment. Right. They could not make a person clean. Right. But think about what Jesus does. Right. Matthew 8, the leper approaches him. Right. And in uh, Leviticus, it says that a leper has to be going around saying, unclean, unclean. That's right. right. So we can assume that the way that this leper is recognized, maybe the, the clothes that he has or the fact that he is declaring himself unclean. Mm -hmm. And yet Jesus doesn't go away from him like the priests of the Old Covenant. He approaches him. He speaks to him. And he puts his hands upon him. Right. And Jesus is not defiled, but rather Jesus in his holiness then makes this leper clean. clean. Yeah. And not breaking the law of the Old Testament, but fulfilling it, he tells that leper to go and offer the sacrifice that is necessary for a cleansed leper. Mm. Right. And so in that way, he is showing the priest who had no power to cleanse the leper. Right. Uh, there's a new priest here. Hey. And he is able to not only pronounce forgiveness of sins, as the priest of the Old Testament did, he's also able to make clean so that this leper is now able to re-enter the stream of worship there in Israel. Right. Of course, it's even better under the new covenant and what will be with the resurrection on the last day. So I, I think you already answered the next question, okay. which is how do the leprosy laws help us today? Yeah, that's it, yeah. right? They help us to understand what Jesus does, right. right? So Jesus not only forgives us of our sins, but he makes us clean, right? Right, And that doesn't mean that in this day that a faithful believer won't experience physical pain, physical suffering. In fact, you could read some things, and we will talk about this in Leviticus, some different physical conditions that would keep someone outside of the presence of God in the Old Testament, right? Right. But because a new covenant has come, he cleanses us from the inside out. He promises us a resurrection on the last day. And this is just an amazing truth, mm -hmm. is that those who would have been ceremonial unclean in the Old Testament will be made clean through that resurrection on the last day to enter into the presence of God. Right. right? So hopefully we get a chance to talk about that with uh, the strange laws in Leviticus 21 about the priests and uh, some of their abnormalities that would keep them from service. And yet, actually, instead of actually being discouraging to those with disabilities today, right. I think it's actually one of the most encouraging words. Yeah. That those who need um, to be whole and healthy mm -hmm. to enter the presence of God, if God has promised that through Christ we can enter into his presence, what does that mean? It means he will heal us on the last day to wow. do that as well. In Leviticus 14.53, it says, so he, the priest, shall make atonement for the house, and it shall be clean. What is the priest doing here? Yes, the same context of leprosy. Uh, it appears as though this leprosy can not only be on a person, mm -hmm. but it can be in their home. Wow. Right? Um, so are they looking at leprosy as like, in this context, it's like mm -hmm. a general sickness, like you have a sickness in your home. It's something like that. I mean, typically it's a, it's thought of as a skin disease, right. but here it can be transferred to a, a house. Maybe it's a mold or, or yeah, something like right, that. 
Um, I mean, obviously, we know the physical effects of mold today. You right, know, yeah. so, but I think one of the things that may be most helpful here is that just as the priest is responsible for purifying the house of God, and the house of God in its structures, right, with um, the table for the bread and the lampstand that is there and the holy, the, the mercy seat. So it's basically the same furniture that you would find in the tents of the people of Israel, mm-hmm. right? So if it is the case that just as the priests have to keep the house of God clean, mm-hmm. I think also there is an implication that the houses of Israel were also to be clean because they're a priestly people. Right? So in the same way that they center their life around God and His holiness at the center of the camp. These, again, because remember Leviticus 14 is talking to those in the camp and then later as well mm-hmm. um, when they go into the land, but in particular in the camp, that they too are to conduct themselves in clean ways. Mm-hmm. And that just as God's house is cleansed, their houses are cleansed. It's the priest who's going to do that. So it just shows the way in which there's not a divide in Israel between the sacred and the secular, mm-hmm. the houses where they live, the, the work that they will do, but rather there's a, a, a unity between the two, right? And so God, through the priesthood, is going to purify the places where the people live. Mm-hmm. And again, I think thinking about typology, that has great implication for us today as well. That God not only cleanses us for worship on Sunday morning, but in all that we do, right? So that we would live a holy life before Him, rather when we are gathered in worship or whether we are scattered to go to the ends of the earth. So when I think about this, each individual person needs to be cleansed. Our salvation Mm -hmm. is individual. Like what Christ has done for me does not pass on to my children, right. that we each have to accept Christ individually and have to be um, saved individually. Mm-hmm. Is that so? In saying that, is that why each individual house needed to be cleansed? Yeah. So again, so the language that we use about even salvation, sanctification, cleansing, mm-hmm. which New Testament uses, but it's taking that from the well of the words of the Old Testament. Right. Right. So when it says in First John one nine, right, that um, you know. Those who confess their sins to God, He is faithful and just to cleanse them of their sin and to uh, and un- unrighteousness. Right. Mm-hmm. So He has to He forgives them of their sin and He cleanses them of their unrighteousness. So there's forgiveness and there's cleansing. Mm-hmm. Right. That language comes from the atonement of the Old Testament. Right. In the atonement, there is both the legal aspect of forgiveness and there is the the purification aspect of cleansing. Like that's right. what the blood does. It forgives and it cleanses. Um, and so I think when we think of ourselves today, there's an individual way that that's being worked out. Every single individual must trust in Christ to be saved. My children are not saved by my faith, right. and I am not saved by my parents' faith. But it's slightly different in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, it was a physical generation that produced the people of Israel, right? That's why circumcision was in the flesh, mm-hmm. not in the heart, right? right? So again, this is the way that typology works from the Old Testament to the New. The blessing of the children in the Old Testament was based upon the faithfulness of the parents in a way that is somewhat different than today. Right? I mean, there is a blessing to grow up in a Christian home, right? to be under parents who pray for their children. But just because I am a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that that will pass on by um, my genetic code right, <laughs> to yeah. my children. Right? So, again, typology helps us to think about these things. In Leviticus 15, why is there so much attention placed to discharges, emissions, and blood? <laughs> yeah. That's a great question. <laughs> yeah, right? right? 
And so obviously God is teaching us something about what it means to approach him mm -hmm. and that even our natural normal functions of the body, there's a need for cleanliness before him, right? right? I think again, this all is going to show that God cares about the body and why when Jesus goes to the cross and dies, he not only offers blood to atone for our sin, but he's raised on the third day to give us promise of a body that will be holy and eternal and healthy with him for all of eternity. Amen. So this is the last question. In general, how should Christians read Leviticus for their own edification? Yeah, so uh, I would read Leviticus always with Hebrews on the next page, mm -hmm. right? So Hebrews is kind of the map that helps us to understand. It's the key that helps us to understand what we find in Leviticus. So I'd read those two things together. I think we could also just uh, be helped by just asking a few questions again. Right? Where is Leviticus being written? It is being written or read or heard at Mount Sinai. Therefore, it is for the people of Israel at that time. Mm -hmm. right? It is not directly applied to us in this way. Uh, it helps us to see Jesus and understand what he has done there. Um, a couple years ago, I wrote a blog post about this, 10 things to keep in mind you know, as you're reading through Leviticus. We'll add that uh, as a link uh, as well. But I think the key thing to see is that this law was given for a time and a place and a people. Right? It came with an expiration date on it. Right. It is not directly applied to us today. Your life will not be improved by just doing all the food laws that you find here. This is not mm. kind of, you know, Daniel diet before Daniel. Right. Yeah. right? This is for the people of Israel to know how they are to walk in holiness with God. Uh, as we come back and look at our next podcast, we'll see how there are verses that are applied to the people of Israel, or excuse me, are applied to the church today. But as they're applied, they're applied in ethical ways, mm -hmm. not in literal ways right. with respect to the food laws that are found there. This concludes our discussion of the Old Testament portion of our reading plan. As you follow along with the reading plan, if you have any questions or comments that you would like us to discuss, please send us to vmas at obc.org. You may hear your response in our upcoming episodes. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the Gospel Center Ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.